everything is political. The personal is political. The environment is political. The stars of the sky, the roundness of the earth, the mere existence or non-existence of something is political. We know this to be true from the governance of women's bodies to the safety of religious environments, that everything has the potential to be political. We heard some awesome thoughts from Ryan last week, and in this talk, I really just want to highlight and focus on a couple of them in particular to continue our conversation this weekend. Specifically, I want to zero in on the politic of empathy, or maybe the empathy of politics. However you want to look at it, how we exist and relate to one another has one pillar of political connection in the midst of many pillars holding up each of our temples. To start us off, I want to give us some definitions of both politics and empathy. Politics include the activities associated with the governance of a country or area, especially the debate or conflict amongst individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve power. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Relating to one another ultimately holds some form of conflict, power dynamic, connection, or disconnection. Whether it's your boss or your employee, your spouse or your children, these things are true. In essence, you are governing how you relate to others. And politics, especially national politics, are like a giant spider web of intertwining ideologies, needs, thoughts, feelings, and desires that may or probably may not work together. And today I'm going to talk about how empathy, the ability to share understanding and feelings of another, to truly see them, has operated to play an actually significant role in the division of society when used poorly. I'll also talk about how the working out of the gospel in public is true empathy and how participating in politics can continue to be an empathic act as we consider voting to be a spiritual right or right. And I just want to re-emphasize a few things that Ryan said last week as starting points for us today. First and foremost, we are not trying to be partisan. I fully believe in both religious and political spheres that people on either end of the spectrum can and do silo themselves off. And this is a dangerous practice in either regard. There's enough political tribalism out there and I'm using this particular frame of empathy to expose how this is harmful on all sides. The true definition of religion as we talk about religion and politics is simply how you orient your life towards meaning. And if we're orienting ourselves from a Christian narrative, at least in part, then we say that this meaning, the meaning of the gospel, 
must be worked out in public. So let me read some biblical text and let's get into it. This is from Romans 12, starting in verse 9, titled, Love in Action. Love in Action. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep up your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. The word of the Lord. Now to start us off today, a person by the name of Jeremy Rafkin in his book, The Empathic Civilization, the race to global consciousness in a world in crisis says that empathy in its deepest act must impact politics, which in turn impacts global warming, the ability of having a welfare state, etc., etc., etc. It also says that empathy starts with believing people, what they're telling you, what they're suffering. And you truly can't be empathic if you choose to do so selectively towards just the people that you want to believe. Now, while the ability to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourn with those who mourn is mostly a good thing, just like anything, there's a potential dark side. Empathy is often one-sided. One of the strongest triggers for human empathy is observing some kind of conflict between two other parties, says Fritz Brethaupt, a professor at Indiana University who studies empathy. Once they take the side, they're drawn into that perspective. And that can lead to very strong empathy and too strong polarization with something you only see this one side and not the other side any longer. Well, this might be a too soon statement, Ravkin says that there is a new virus, circa 2010, of selective empathy that is deepening division. There are three types of empathy, which not only sounds like a lot, but it also sounds exhausting, which I'll get back to later. And the three types are cognitive, emotional, and compassionate. Cognitive empathy is empathy by thought rather than by feeling. You can imagine what it's like, but there's no feeling attached to it. 
And this can be bad in that it's easy to emotionally distance yourself and not take what they're experiencing seriously, easily rationalizing it away without considering the emotional aspect. An emotional empathy is when you quite literally feel the other person's emotions alongside them, as if you'd caught the emotions. And this can be good because it means that we can readily understand and feel other people's emotions. But again, it can be bad in that it's possible to become overwhelmed by these emotions and therefore unable to respond, almost like emotional paralysis. In the fight or flight binary, it's a third option, freeze. And compassionate empathy is what we usually understand by empathy, feeling someone's pain and then taking action to help. It's, com it's consistent with what we usually understand by compassion. Like sympathy, compassion is about feeling concern for someone, but with an additional move towards action to mitigate the problem. And sometimes the act of compassion is merely presence. It's staying, even while you inhale the grief, the conflict, the trouble that another's predicament or view of the world causes you. Your ability to have compassion as a human is so innate and doesn't change. It's the attitude. And there's a bit of a myth out there about compassion fatigue. You can't truly feel too much compassion for yourself or others. There's only empathy fatigue. Mourning with those who mourn over and over again. Burnout comes from the work that empathy takes to pull yourself into that framework for sociological imagination. Empathy is hard work. And as a result, people often choose to avoid it Viewing it as just not worth the effort. And as an aside, if you only experience empathy for other suffering with no loving compassion for yourself, you resonate with the pain of others and have nothing to balance yourself, therefore developing empathy fatigue. But when you give yourself loving kindness, chesed from God, you have a protective buffer from the negative effects of feeling the suffering. That's maybe why Jesus says something to the extent of love your neighbor as yourself. Empathy operates out of an understanding of abundance. With the church that I worked for in Chicago, we, were, we had an anti-racism audit and more or less were judged on how we were working in terms of what we were calling transformational values, which were in direct opposition of white institutional values. If the white institutional value includes either or thinking, operating out of an attitude of scarcity, the glorification of the individual, then transformational values invite both and thinking 
attitudes of abundance and the recognition and lifting up of the community. On Wednesday, Bob introduced the wonderful idea um, or frame from Jesus' time that for Mediterranean people, there's this idea of limited good. So when Jesus said that there's unlimited grace, this was radical. And I think in this, he welcomes unlimited compassion and to our ability, unlimited empathy. And also during that small group, Brian mentioned how part of our call is to be open to all others' understanding and relation to the divine. And this is where our transformation can happen in and through empathy. Feeling another's emotions, seeing from another perspective. And in the world that we live in, in the chaos of these times, where there are so many political issues, it can be very, very hard to find ourselves reason and ability to be grounded in empathy. While the issues themselves haven't necessarily become more polarized, our identities have become more tied to our politics. And in this, our nation has become even more divided. There's a political psychologist by the name of Liliana Mason, and she puts it, a partisan behaves more like a sports fan than like a banker choosing an investment. Partisans feel emotionally connected to the welfare of the party. They prefer to spend time with other members of the party. And when the party is threatened, they become angry and work to help conquer the threat, even if they disagree with some of the issue positions taken by the party. She continues on to do a study of the range and ability of empathy between a person who is in the in-group and a person in the out-group. And in these results of the study, empathic concern increased dislike of the out party when you're truly connected and empathic towards someone of the in party. However, it still increased comfort with someone from the out group. Those high in empathic concern were less likely to be upset by the prospect of having a family member or neighbor who belongs to the opposite party. Therefore, empathic concern does have an approach um, that encourages contact with members from the out party or the out group, even if the primary goal of that contact is to ultimately alter behavior that's seen as harmful, not only to one's in-group, but the entire society. Additional research shows that citizens higher in empathic concern are more motivated to be a part of the political process, to try and reduce harm, and to even be attracted to the idea of running and holding political office. So in looking at just the psychological research that's been done, we can sense that what we need is a stronger motivation for out-group empathic care. And one of a good way of doing this 
is not by decreasing one's general disposition towards caring for the suffering of others, but simply by increasing one's contact with members of the other groups and focusing on common experiences and concerns. This isn't new information at all, but I think it's interesting as we look at the politics of what it would take for that to happen, as well as the level of empathy and emotional maturity that would take for it to happen. Like the Good Samaritan Ryan brought up last week, he had empathy for someone of an out party. Therefore, using empathy in its true nature, being able to look beyond any earthly divides. If you've ever done or heard of yoga and its practice, um, a word that they use is namaste. It means the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. Maybe we take that a step further to say the sufferer in me recognizes the sufferer in you. The rejoicer in me recognizes the rejoicer in you. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And yet even this idea of feeding someone or giving someone something to drink, the core needs of air, water, food, shelter, and even less tangible things of safety, emotional connection, and sense of purpose, these have all become political issues. And yet, if we look at the life of Jesus, if we look at the ideas behind the cross, I don't think we'd have to go very far to believe Jesus when he asked things like, love thy neighbor, to know that it's coming out of a place of empathy. And if we need any more reason to live into true empathy, no matter how political it's become, be still and know that God knows us. God's the very best at empathy. She knows how we are formed. She remembers that we are dust. Psalm 1 of 3.14 He personally feels the pain of his people you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. Psalm 56, 8. How comforting it is to know that God records all our tears and all our struggles. How good to remember God's invitation to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. We are living in a world, in a time, in which we are experiencing historical dislocation and fragmented ideologies. Through mass media, we are confronted with the most paradoxical human experiences. 
we see not only the most elaborate and expensive attempts to save the life of one person by heart transplant, but also the powerlessness of the world to help when thousands of people die from lack of food. Henry J. Nowen explores this in his book, The Wounded Healer, which I highly recommend um, just for even the conversation that it might bring. Um, but he talks about two ideas of how we break out of kind of our cocoons that we've built for ourselves, our silos, if you will, um, to move forward. And he explores two primary ways that he sees happening in the world. Some folks who are trying to find connection through a mystical way, and others trying to find connection through the revolutionary way. The first is trying to find in their inner lives a connection with the reality of the unseen, the source of being. They discover what's personal is also universal. There's this distinction between life and death that can be transcended, in which a deep connection with all of nature and all of history can be experienced. However, there are limits to the mystical way. And the revolutionary way talks and thinks about becoming visible in a modern age transcending human predicament. Here people become aware that the choice is no longer between our present world or a better world, but between a new world or no world. But even in this, there is this total self-destruction that is happening through a passive fatalism that is no longer connected always to truth. And so now I'm presents a third way, the Christian way, in which Jesus is both the mystical and the revolutionary, two aspects of the same attempt to bring about radical change. Mystics cannot present themselves from becoming social critics, since in self-reflection they will discover the roots of a sick society. And revolutionaries cannot avoid facing their own human condition, since in the midst of their struggle for a new world, they'll find that they are also fighting their own reactionary fears and false ambitions. But Jesus is this one in whom it's become manifest that revolution and conversion cannot be separated in the human search for experiential transcendence. His mere existence makes it clear that the changing the human heart and changing human society are not separate tasks, but are as interconnected as the two beams of the cross. I don't think that Jesus could have done anything that he did, like going to the cross, without the object of empathy. Empathy is love translated into the social sphere. And while many of us easily feel the joys and pains of those closest to us, true empathy allows us to feel for those outside of our group, those we have never met, and those of other species and for the planet 
as a living system. Our culture has in general sectioned love off to the isolated personal realm, where it appears to pose no threat to the established social hierarchy. But love for those outside our immediate circle, or even our species, is a crucial component of our ability to be social, enabling us to override our powerfully inbuilt tendencies of in-group, out-group thinking, us versus them. And I know I say all of these things and maybe you've been thinking, yeah, well, wherever I stand, I'm practicing true empathy. And I believe you. I believe that we are all trying. However, in order to move forward, we have to take action, love in action, compassionate action. And yet, there is the possibility of empathy overload. But what we can do is to share in these pieces, even from the text, trying our best to truly hear and truly see the other. Whether that's another from another political group, someone who would be the exact opposite of someone you'd want to talk to or meet, whoever it would be hardest to live in harmony with, whoever it would be harder to rejoice with when they're rejoicing and mourn with when they're mourning. And this can't be a disjointed effort. Somehow, some way, we have to convince everyone that this is an urgent issue. It is a difference between a new world or no world. And if we're going to count on anything, I would say we can count on true empathy, something that we can still somehow, some way control, even if we can't control it in others. We must continue to look towards abundance, towards community with others, if we're going to be able to move forward. And I believe that this happens in the right of spiritual, spiritual right of voting. I'll often argue that there's an eighth sacrament of silence, and maybe we can take it a step further. Let's just jump it up to nine and say that voting, being an active participant in creating the society in which we are a part of, is a spiritual issue so much as it's a political one. I don't think that we can separate these pillars out so cleanly as many try to do. But if we're going to put empathy into the world to translate it into the social sphere, this is merely one way that we can pick up and hold accountable one another in the process. And I'm not talking accountability in the form of Saturday morning men's groups and Wednesday night women's groups in which there's this fake idea of holding one another accountable to very strange socially implicated ideas of morality. No, no. I'm talking about holding accountable how one's actions are impacting lives of another. 
if we're going to survive, if we're going to be part of this race to global consciousness when we're in a world in crisis, we must recognize that our ability to have empathy that is not one-sided is a necessary piece of the puzzle. In this, and only in this, can we see love put into action. Amen.